Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. This is episode 61 and tonight's feature presentation is Fish Story. Um, I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, hello, hello. Um, but before we obviously get into our feature presentation tonight, uh, which as we said at the start, so there is uh, 2009's Fish Story from Yoshihiro Makamura. Uh, but it's time to obviously ask what you've been watching and we are now coming back at the time of recording this uh, being on the 10th of January uh, after a little bit of a festive break and uh, Stephen I mean what did uh, has been holding your interest if anything well yeah I, I actually got a, a list of films on my arm but I might save a couple of them but I'll talk about, I'll talk about a couple of them okay. so I've been, been doing a good job on the catching up just on TV shows but on some films as well um, and the two I want to talk about um, relate back to a couple of our previous episodes, um, specifically um, episode 42, when we talked about Peppermint Candy, and episode 41, when we talked about Antique Bakery. Um, the first one I want to talk about is Burning, which is uh, by the director of Peppermint Candy and starring one of the stars of Antique Bakery. I just thought that was quite nice there. Okay. We'll link it back up. Um, yeah, so it's a uh, it's a bit art housey, <laughs> as you would expect from the uh, director of Peppermint Candy. Um, it's, a, it's a psychological thriller mystery drama, according to Wikipedia, and, and it is all those things. Um, based on one of the short stories from Haruki Murakami's Elephant Vanishes um, collection of short stories yep. um sort of sort of art house serial killer thriller i guess is is what we would call it um starring uh you are in who was one of the stars of antique bakery I'm Stephen Yuen and uh john yong Xiu. um basically it's one of these sort of um uh korean thrillers that's concerned with class and the haves and the have not that sort of bring us back to maybe like when we talked about um, Mother um, uh, you are in stars as a sort of what should we call him sort of a, a kid from, from, from rural Korea um, North Korea in particular so he lives up near the border um, his mother is, is long gone, his father's in prison um, he's sort of got a farm left behind and he's sort of learning to look after it he runs into an old school friend played by young young Xiao, who's um handing out sort of freebies outside of a supermarket in sort of you know low rent k-pop style but you know she's she's just she's just a pretty girl holding handing out um freebies to people coupons and the like anyway they get to talking they form a relationship but they're both they're both from sort of the the, the poorer side of south korea um, after a while, they sort of the girl comes across another character played by Stephen Yuen, um, who 
is very much a rich boy. Um, drives a drives a drives a very fancy car. Has got seemingly unlimited access to money, to the best restaurants. He um, he also as a, as a you are in sort of comments. It's not actually clear what he does for a living. He's just rich. And again, it's all that whole gangum soul kind of deal you know where where there's just these incredibly rich kids that obviously have inherited their money um basically this this rich kid gets in the way of a budding romance and then the girl disappears and what begins to unfold is a uh, character suddenly realizes that some of the odd things that's been going on with the rich kid might suggest he's not only done away with their mutual friend but maybe he makes a habit of this and when he talks about every so often that he burns barns <laughs> he actually is killing people um but there's there's a lot there's a there's a bit more going on than this it's it's quite oblique um it's not as obviously a sort of serial killer drama as maybe i've made out that's a reading of it there could be some readings of it which wonder if some of the actions actually happening and some of the actions actually happening within a novel that's being written at the same time um it's really good won a ton of awards a couple of years ago yeah 2018 um I'm a big fan of Hoki Murakami's writing anyway, so that, that's what attracted me to it. I didn't realise it was by uh, Lee Chang-dong when I bought it a while ago. But it's been on the to-watch pile. So yeah, really good, although the way I've described it is not the film I think you're going to watch. Okay. <laughs> I think I made it sound kind of interesting, didn't I? It's a serial killer thriller. <laughs> um, it, it is, but it isn't. It's more of a sort of a, so, a social drama, but it's really, really well acted. Um... And it's interesting to see. Um, so uh, you are in played the boxer boxer character that turned into a chef in antique bakery. Okay, yeah. Really interesting to see him. He is a huge star now, and you know, lead, leading uh, Lee Chang Dong film. That's that that's that's big stuff. However, what I didn't realise was he was also the lead character in the other film I want to talk <laughs> about, um, which is one of the couple of. Korean films which seem to be doing quite well on Netflix at the moment um, the one I'm going to talk about now is um, well it's uh, it's called Hashtag Alive or, or Sarah, oh, Sarah yeah. Dita yeah the uh, Sarah old Netflix Dita. one it, it is although it wasn't technically a Netflix film they no. just sort of distributed it um, so it's another zombie film um, basically this time uh, Yoin plays uh well, he's just sort of a kid that lives with his parents in an apartment block who's a sort of a, a game streamer, one of these sort of Twitch kids, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, he's, so he doesn't really seem to do very much. He's a bit spoiled, he's a single child, but he's 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 a reasonable fella. And he's got, you know, he's got his hair bleached, he's kind of cool, he's kind of done with it, he's kind of part of the zeitgeist. Um, one day he wakes up and a zombie invasion's taken over. Um, so most of the action takes place within his apartment. Um, now he's got lots of toys and gimmicks like drones and things, which add a little new kind of twist to the old zombie thriller. Um, but most of the time he's an observer with the occasional zombie trying to break in. After a while, he, um, realizes there's a young girl, so similar age to him in an apartment opposite him that he can see across the concourse played by a park shin high um 
And she's interesting because she's the lead character in the other Netflix Korean film that seems to be doing drama called The Call, which we might talk about later. Um, uh, it, it's they, they eventually meet up. Shenanigans happen. There's a third act, a bit of weirdness that goes on. Um, what's really interesting about this film is it's actually from a script by an American scriptwriter, Matt Naylor, who actually got the film made the year before, a film called Alone. So this film exists twice from the same script within the same year. There's an American one, I haven't seen it, and, and, and this South Korean one. Um, it obviously got released at the time when COVID struck in South Korea, um, did quite well at the box office but now like like, like you said quite rightly said um it's got picked up by netflix and it's all right it's 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 not as good as i hoped it was going to be it doesn't really bring a lot new to the table well, you know there's, there's as with all these films there's always a fun way a new way of killing a zombie right um i just think it's just i think especially there's there's a bit of weirdness that happens in the third act which really comes from nowhere and goes nowhere it has a finale which every recent zombie film seems to have i.e. they're suddenly rescued at the last minute by the government. I'll take you to Peninsula. <laughs> that's, a, that's pretty much the same ending. Um, yeah, but it's, 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 it's well worth a watch. Um, and it's quite touching in some ways. It's just got a really, a really odd structure. Like I said, the third act, another character's brought in out of nowhere that, that feels like it's from another film. And also Park Shen Hai's character isn't is, is introduced a bit late in the day for me so there's a little bit of a slog getting through the first sort of 45 minutes to an hour but yeah hi, highly entertaining and again really interesting to see that you are in is becoming this kind of superstar just looking at his um post antique bakery um uh cv he's he's doing indie films he's doing top rank mainline korean cinema he does seem to be the latest poster boy for um act, actor for korean cinema which is interesting because he didn't actually want to be an actor and, and actually took a year off in his early age but yes very very nice to sort of tie those two things albeit accidentally to our previous shows um so yeah that that, that that'll do for me this week Okay. I've heard mixed things about uh, Hashtag Live, so it's not really made it onto my watch pile at the moment. So eventually I'll get round to uh, looking at it, because they kind of timed it rather nicely with Netflix. The fact that when we first went into lockdown, they released this zombie movie with a guy trapped in his apartment. Mm. So yes, it was I, good timing think, on I, their part. I, th- I think it accidentally hit, sort of was became part of the zeitgeist, but I was fascinated to see it. It was up number one in trending on UK Netflix, which I was thinking... I know, I know. The Kingdom did very well. The the period zombie stuff, which I was uh, gushing about, probably this time last year, thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fine. It, indeed, it's even good. But I wouldn't say it's worth shuffling around your Netflix queue to uh, to pick it up. Burning, on the other hand, is really really good. But um, might be something I maybe bring to the show in a year's time when I've when you've forgotten everything I've just said. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, no Netflix, obviously doing their bit for Asian cinema distribution at the moment. I mean, you 
only this week as we go into recording they've added a host of things you've mentioned already you've got the call on there we've got um uh, Food Wars Season 2 has been added recently, which I'm partway through at the moment and absolutely loving. It's uh, more of the same randomness that was in this first season, so it's very reminiscent of God of Cookery, the Stephen Chow movie, but at the same time it makes it kind of awkward when people are having foodgasms and randomly shedding all their clothes just because they're so excited about food. So it's got that randomness to it, but uh, no, it's still really fun show and suddenly the recipes are really interesting as well on there as well but suddenly going into uh this year netflix have already announced that they got a host of uh shows that ne- anime shows that they are producing so um it's gonna be exciting to see those when they finally filter through uh but um yeah much like yourself just trying to catch up and be a little more cultural this year do a little more reading play a little more games watch a few more movies um you know just try and do that instead of focusing on the chaos of the world around us and social media, which is pretty much one or two notes at the moment. So it's healthier to uh, just, you know, fo- focus on your culture and hopefully not overdo it so you end up looking like Tetsuo at the end of Akira. No, I had mute on because I no, was fine. laughing. I was laughing. It was a yes. Edit this so I'm laughing. <laughs> okay. No, I thought we were just planting a seed for for maybe episode 100, mate. Who knows? I don't know. At the moment, episode 100 is is way. I'd like to say it's well from the distance, but then again, we did the episode count before we came on tonight, and it was all like, well, we're surprisingly ahead of ourselves, and obviously. Uh, we've got our midway point between then as well, which uh, we've already got something special planned for. So that's going to be exciting to uh, remind folks of what they've obviously chosen for us to do when we hit that midway point. And um, yeah, as I said, it's just uh, generally been trying to catch up on stuff. I finally finished after, I don't know now, I think since since 2000 I've been trying to finish Neon Genesis Evangelion and I finally did it just before Christmas, and now I have questions. Like, I think everyone who watches that series does by the time they get to it. So I will, hopefully by the time we record again, um, have seen the film versions, which apparently not only reboot it, but also clean up that ending, which has suffered from some production issues, to say the least. Um, But on the more important note, I managed to cross off two big titles off my watch list, and uh, you're putting me happy I've... I've, uh, seen those um first uh, both of them surprisingly are bong joon ho films keep going okay <laughs> uh first off we've got okja from 2017 okay yes um his first collaboration talking, talking netflix. of netflix <laughs> it's our yep. netflix episode yes um i was surprised this is a dueling role production I thought mm-hmm. it was just a Korean production and I and uh to the was it but no it's actually got a host of uh Hollywood actors, as we say, we obviously got Tilda Swindon playing dual roles. We've got Paul Dano, Stephen Young, Lee Collins, Shirley Henderson, and we've also got Jake Gyllenhaal, who's pretty much unrecognisable. While we've also got uh, Giancarlo Esposito doing his usual less is more style of acting. Um, here, imagine to blow everyone else out of the room just by lifting up a coffee cup. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's a charming tale of, you know, one girl and a super pig. Um, and there's a so many wonderful moments throughout it, such as you got that chase scene for the mall, which I've said on Facebook and various groups that I've been talking about this movie over the weekend that just that scene alone just reminded me so much of the Blues Brothers, and I don't mm. know why. Uh, but uh, 
yeah I, I really enjoyed i really enjoyed it uh even though the ending is kind of dark it's surprisingly surprisingly dark uh, for that one but i guess it kind of makes sense i i i watched it when it came out because it is it's legitimate netflix um production isn't it yes it, it is it's... And I remember there was a lot of, um, I guess, I guess uh, Bong Joon was probably one of the first directors to really put out a film in this way, because it was it was a lot more controversial than to be doing that. Now it appears to be de rigueur. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it was produced by Plan B Productions, who's Brad Pitt's production mm. company, and it was one of the two productions he's done. He did War Machine, which he started himself, and he did this. And you right, it came out of the 2017 Cannes Film Festival, and obviously the Netflix logo comes at the start. Everybody boos it, and then they're showing it completely out of focus, so everyone boos louder. So they reboot the film, so the Netflix logo comes up again for like the second time, and everyone like boos it even louder still. So it uh, had, there were a lot of controversy because I mean at that time I mean obviously, and I think I don't know are we still controversial about Netflix being a, a valid distribution platform. Because I, I know there's I think, obviously the people say it's got to be a theatrical release and Netflix doesn't count. But well, that's the only time, the that's only the French that think that, isn't it? But at the um, same time, Netflix are the ones taking chances with a script like Okjar because I can't see anyone else doing it. Well, certainly not with worldwide distribution. I think with I think I think Netflix have gotten lucky. I think um, there would have still been a lot of pushback, but the world we're in now. It's the only way a lot of people in a lot of countries can see films is on streaming services. Um, there is, you know, there are films now that get come out first time on Netflix, on Amazon, on Disney Plus, on HBO Max if you're in the states. Um, the yeah, I think I think the purity of something getting a cinema release, the genie, you know, the genie's out the bottle, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it's it's it, we're done. It's um, Netflix have won, but I would I... say you know Net- Netflix is producing fantastic original content mm. and giving space to films, not just Asian films, not just Hollywood films, but you know films from all over and TV series from series series so yeah. I from all over the world, <laughs> um, and and it's it is much more you know of all the content providers. Netflix do seem to be the ones who are pushing either original content or distributing interesting content from the rest of the world. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't see HBO Max looking outside of its own purview. Um, Amazon's a mess, but there's still some good stuff there. But broadly, as a as a provider, it's a mess. And Disney Plus is. I've now got Disney Plus. I got it for free with my um, with my mobile phone contract for six months. Okay. And, I've watched everything I want to watch in one night. Pretty much, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, there's a few Marvel TV shows I'm interested in, but it's got nothing. It's got I've got no interest in anything that I wouldn't have already seen. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the, it comes to the platforms, Amazon have been certainly producing some great original content for their channel. We've set, you know adaptations of both Preacher and The Boys, and not to Ooh. mention they've also picked up things such as The Current War, um, which somehow manages to disappear into either, despite having that absolutely stunning cast and being a 
um, a Scorsese production, yet somehow it managed to get lost in the shuffle, so it was great that they picked it up along with things like the Aeronauts. And yes, you're right, the whole algorithm is completely broken over there, but if you're willing to do the deep dives, you also find it's almost like the old school video shop of the streaming services. So certainly for people like ourselves who like into like the obscure 60s and 70s cult stuff and um, perhaps some of the DTV stuff, I mean, you can watch the older Nemesis movies on there, which are uh, interesting um, and certainly appeal to a certain type of viewer um, who's got a, a, a strong enough cinematic stomach to handle that sort of DTV style of filmmaking. Um, so yeah, the, you can check out like the Albert Pruin back catalogue and stuff for Amazon Prime, who I don't think those movies are going to appear anywhere else unless they happen to be like uploaded on YouTube, for example. Um, and at the same time, these uh, services are also the ones taking the risk. We see already, we mentioned already, obviously, with Netflix are taking great risks with the projects that attach themselves, not only with this, but we saw with like Velvet Buzzsaw. And it seems that every time that Jake Gyllenhaal gets attached to a Netflix project, he pulls out one of his more interesting performances. Um, and you, Disney Plus, I mean, we've. Yes, I mean, at the moment, there's not really a lot to watch on there. I mean, you can obviously watch the Marvel movies, you can watch The Mandalorian, but looking ahead, I mean, we've got WandaVision, which uh, is actually pretty risky, and surprisingly so for Disney, and you've obviously got dinosaurs being added at the end of the month as well, so I guess that's two things to hold on to. I mean, yes, you've got you've got a whole bunch of Marvel TV shows, both... Um... Uh, both live action and animated like with the what if show um so if it's if it's anything as good as the harley quinn animation that um <laughs> who rescued that from from the dc channel was it uh was that, that i believe that's gone to hbo it has hasn't it but you know a fantastic show that could have just been hidden away on a on a streaming service yeah because that was on the um dc universe wasn't it so it was yes, and it's fantastic. Um, so I've got I've got hopes for the What If show. I've got hopes for I've got hopes for those Marvel things. The problem is, I watched the first night I had it. I watched both the Star Wars films. I was vaguely interested yeah. in, and I've got all the Marvel movies. You know, I, I don't think many people are Marvel fans that were just waiting for this to happen. Um, Disney itself, yeah, there's some there's some stuff in there, but they're not. Disney as Disney doesn't really interest me. Now, maybe if some more of the Buena Vista stuff turns up on there over time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't want to watch Hannah Montana or, or anything like that. I'm just not interested. So, uh, bizarre when you look at the Disney Plus platform, though, the fact that people get it, but everyone gets it to watch, as I said, like The Mandalorian, which is a Star Wars property. They've got the mm. Marvel on there. You've got National Geographic, and now they're adding Star. Just in case you wanted to watch Die Hard and Lost. Uh, you're going to be in luck there, so... Yeah, and, it, it, you know, I've, I've got it for free. I'm not complaining. I've got it for free for six months. Of course, it's done in such a way. I'm not entirely sure how I will undo it. Um, I've also had Apple TV for six months and watched one thing on it. Is anything so, actually um, on Apple? Because every time I look at Apple, I don't actually see any real program, just, like, the six things that have been advertised. The only thing I watched was um, Jason Sudeikis's Ted Lasso. Right, which is actually pretty fucking fantastic. <laughs> when, but outside of all expectations of a of a of a, of a nearly decades long ago joke that he did for Sky TV, um, they actually managed to make a really touching and funny sports comedy. Um, 
but it's not worth buying just for 10 episodes of that that's for five hours you know that's yeah that's so i wanted to watch that um oh the show from the creator of um always sunny about the game developers Oh, devs. Is it devs? No, no that's, that's not, else, it's it? not devs. It's, um... Oh, I can't remember what it is, but it's Rob McAnally, who's recently bought it a is, football yes. team with um, Ryan Reynolds over here, so... Wrexham, yeah. So, I suppose that means something to somebody, so... <laughs> um, so, yeah, I watched that, and as of today, I can finally say that I've seen Parasite. Oh, wonderful. In 2019. Uh, obviously, the big Oscar winning picture at the 92nd Academy Film Awards, and it's certainly an unusual movie to win Best Picture. So, if you remember at the time when I watched it, I was I thought it was good, but not his best. Um, I, I've always much preferred Mother, um, which is why I brought it to the show. Really? Um, I, I think there are other show, other films of, in his oeuvre that are, are superior to it, but it's good. What did you think of? Well, I think it's good. What did you? I think thought of it was. Like I said. I thought it was one of his top tens. It's not his best film. I mean, Snowpiercer myself is two of my favourite film by him. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Mother, I always place in kind of that that middle range, and certainly Okja again is, is another top contender there with uh, the host right at the bottom for myself. So, and I think that's the problem because I watched the host and everyone made such a fuss of the host and they still continue to make a fuss at the host even to the point that when I criticised it I got the comment of you don't know what the fuck you're talking about which I think <laughs> is always creative criticism um, and I think it's kind of tainted as I said Bong Joon-ho's work and, and I keep watching these films I go in I keep putting them off and then I watch them and they're like as I said I watched Mother and I enjoyed it and I obviously watched uh, Okja and and Parasite in the same weekend, and both really enjoyed those. Yeah, for some reason, I had this huge hang-up over Bong Joon-ho as a director, and I don't understand it. But, I mean, he was up in against The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, uh, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, obviously, I would have thought that The Irishman would have won that particular year. Uh, oh, we also had Ford versus Ferrari there as well. Um, or perhaps, you know, Joker is a long shot, but no, Parasite, it's such a, it's a beautifully shot film, but it's a very odd story. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's his finest looking film. He's not always one to me that it's him, Park Chan, Wook, and, uh, who's the other fella? Uh, Kim, Kim, um, who did, um... Kim K. Duck. No, 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 no. Oh, uh, um... The guy who did The Good, The Bad, The Weird and all that. Junji Kim. Oh, yes. It? Yeah. 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 Usually those three are the three that sort of punted around as, as the upper, along with the director of Peppermint Candy and, and The Burning. There's maybe the four that are always pumped, pumped out as, as as the top ranked one. And I do feel Bong is the most consistent. Park Chan-wook has the best looking films. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim maybe has... Uh, I reckon the most interesting Taylor Two Sisters. Um, I saw The Devil. Um, I think I think he's got the strongest films, but I think Bong is the is the most consistent, and he's the one I can go to, and I know he's interested in society and the haves and the have-nots. He's yeah, he's he's definitely got a theme running through his work that makes his films easier to for me to digest. Yeah. Whereas Park's films are 
yes, all right, there was the there was the Vengeance trilogy that had a common theme, but his films are stylish. There's no one makes more beautiful films than Park Chan Wook, yeah. Um, and we need to we need to look at a couple more of his films, and even ones that I'm not as huge a fan of, like Thirst, look bloody brilliant. Um, so, and 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 then yeah, and then I think I think Kim just has weak films, but really fantastic films covering the whole piece so yeah between th- those three in particular I'm uh, you can't go wrong with many of mm. them but I still am shocked that of all the films that those guys have made let's just say only within their careers is it possible for a Korean director to win the best film Oscar that Parasite won it <laughs> just just doesn't 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 scan to me. It's too Korean almost. I think in many ways this goes up for making uh, making up for the fact that La La Land lost out to Moonlight. I mean, that's still something that that Ben Strong. I watched Moonlight and it's like this is absolute trash. It's like <laughs> it felt like oh, I'm I'm watching this movie just so I can watch two guys kiss at the end. It's like I can watch um, Gregor Arkin movies and see that pretty much every five minutes. Well, he, I I think that's the thing. Gregor Arkin spoiled me as a. As a movie watcher, and it's sort of like, well, this is nothing really new and exciting. <laughs> so there's a whole there's a whole section at the movie store if you just want to watch got two guys kiss. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> you obviously got the new <laughs> new queer movement if you want to uh, mm. obviously watch. You know, people the same gender making out with each other without that being the whole focus of the film. Um, mm. There's so much great stuff in the new queer genre, definitely. So, um, but yeah, as I said, La La and Dubs, I. Just, as I said, that was a movie, one of my f- big surprises. I surprised how much I really enjoyed La La Land, um, especially because all the musical theatre crowd got on it, and I was like, I don't really trust their opinion on things. So, but no, Parasite is um, it, it it it. As I said, it starts off as this this con movie, and then it gets suddenly really dark. Um, and I don't know what it is with, with Bong Joon Ho. He seems to do this to me even now. It's just that he lures me in with an idea, and then he just like pulls the rug out from us and go no we're gonna go really dark now and the end sequence in particular which i'm not gonna ruin if you because there's obviously people out there who haven't seen it and it is now on amazon prime so it's easy to uh get hold get access to it so uh the end sequence in particular was absolutely like pretty jaw-dropping like where they decide to go with that um mm. not to mention a really a really um, wince-inducing fall down the stairs that happens around the midway point that was like, oh my god. So, the question I have to ask yes. is, and I see this as on Amazon Prime as well, do you think there needs to be a black and white version of it? I don't understand the the need for a black and white version. I mean, obviously the fact that it won the best picture and it won best director... You know, it wins these uh, like best best screenplay and best international feature film. So, the fact it wins all these ac- these accolades pretty much means that the people backing it are like, if he wants to do a black and white version, the same way that we had Bam Max Fury Road as a black and white version, it's sort of like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, See, that's a that's a film I knocked off my watch list this, over Christmas as well. well. Fury Road, Max Mad Max Fury Road. You've never I seen it before. Seen no, that's a, oh, that was a. I saw that like night one at the theater, and 
I f- yeah, five years ago, mate, you saw yeah, that. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I was I got halfway through that movie, and I was like, God, why the hell is my jaw hurt? And I realized it's because I was grinning like a Cheshire cat from the spectacle of violence that I have a, 30 years I have a, to happen. I have a slightly different opinion about it. I know. Maybe you're not probably, yeah. to show. Well, it was a long time to go somewhere and decide to go back to the beginning <laughs> again. I think you and Sean Byers over at uh, Junk Food Dinner have probably got a lot to talk about then. Because I believe he's not a fan of it either. So, I I thought I, I mean I, I love the visuals, right? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I love I love you know the, the 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 physicality and the speed of that film is amazing. But the fact that you're half point, it's like the Grand Old Duke of York. <laughs> he had ten thousand cars. He drove it all the way somewhere, and then he drove it all the way back again. It's just like. Oh, really? <laughs> but yeah, but again, you know, I can't say I like Park Chan Wook films because of their visual splendor and then slag off Fury Road for the same issue. Well, Fury Road, I mean, originally Miller had talked about like doing a complete, uh, just a version with just the soundtrack and shoot it completely in black and white. So I think when the black and chrome version came out, I think that was just him, you know, hmm. just basically get his, his vision out there because he'd already, at that point, They'd already won huge critical acclaim and made made the money doing the regular version. So I think they afforded that luxury to to basically do a version in how how he wanted it in the black and chrome version. But no, I don't understand why Parasite needs to be in black and white. I don't think it adds anything, especially to this movie. I can't. It would just feel. I think it takes away. I think I think the color choice in that house. <sighs> It's so like the green of the grass. It's meant to look false. It's meant to show off some blood at a certain point in the film. It's meant to highlight when the kids living in the tent out there. Um, the, the 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 style and the colours and the and just the palette of that film are so important to what it's about. To strip that all away seems like, huh? <laughs> there are plenty of other films which would be better off in black and white. Believe you me, but. Not that one. Oh yeah, and then it even has its magnolia moment where it suddenly floods for no apparent reason. Mm. Where this torrential downpour, and I have no idea why we decided to have this yeah. this whole flooding sequence because it doesn't really impact anything, especially in the film, as far as I could tell. I mean, maybe I missed something in this. Uh, well, it drives them. It drives them out of their underground house, doesn't it? Which is why they've got to go and live in the in the posh house. No, it doesn't. Isn't the house no, underwater? They, then? It's they underwater, but it, it's back. only after because the family go camping, and they decide to hang out at the posh house hmm. to like like live. The whole film itself. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Homer house sits for Mister Burns and he, to fool the documentary crew? He's now like a big shot. Mm. Um, yeah, that's yes. basically what Parasite felt like. That Bong Joon Ho watched watched that episode of The Simpsons. Like I could totally make a two-hour movie out of this. And then, you know, at the end decided to... Uh, I'm just, Sorry, I'm just completely demystifying, like, this film for all you, all you fans of it. But I did really enjoy it, and I think it's one you should definitely check it out. But no, I couldn't help but feel that that's where the plot had been inspired from when I saw this, so... Yeah. No, it, it just, again, we'll go... Oh, no, I've now literally been saying this for, for 13 months. I just don't understand why this film <laughs> took the cycle. And was it... I think it was a really cool trailer. I think I think I think I think it was the trailer one people over and it just the right film at the right time. Okay. 
Maybe um, Kim Jong-un was involved, as they seem to love him in this film. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to do an episode on Parasite at some stage, but let us get some distance from okay. it. Okay. Uh, but yes, as I said, I'm on a, a I'm, I'm continuing my cultural kick at the moment. I'm not buying anything at the moment. I'm saving money to replace my ancient equipment here in the studio. So I'm just basically clearing stuff that I've got like recorded and a watch list. So that's where the focus is. So there's going to be a lot of catch up on these uh, coming episodes. You probably feel it'd be like Edward watches stuff that most people watched like six or four years ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, as I said, it was good to cross those, those two ones off the list because they've been, as I said, hanging over me for a while now. So I've got a few of us. I've got, I mean, obviously I've got like uh, the handmaiden still to watch and, and a couple of uh, bits and pieces. Like I've got the female prison scorpion box set to still finish off. And, uh, there's a few bits on the arrow player as well. So no shortage of things to watch to say the least. But, um, yeah, apart from Ninja Assassin, which was a more throwaway watch, and it's only worth mentioning on here because it obviously stars Korean pop star Rain as a uh, rogue ninja. Mm. But if you like uh, pop ninja movies, that's a really good one to check out, produced by the Wachowski brothers and Joel Silver, and uh, from the director of V for Vendetta. And essentially the whole film is a real homage to, you know, the canon ninja movies and things such as, like, Ninja Scroll and... Uh, if you ever wanted to know what the inside of a blender looks like, then just watch this movie. It's, it's pretty much what you get. Just lots of uh, ninjas and body parts flying off. It's really cool. Have you seen Ninja Assassin? I haven't. Haven't you? The, the attract of rain being in a in a film wasn't enough to make no. me go to it. But if you say it's good, you never know. It's, as I said, it's like, it's like Mortal Kombat. It's throwaway fun. Okay. Well, maybe not then. <laughs> Sorry. I had no clever comeback for you there. <laughs> I'm slowly convincing. I've got Emily over it. Uh, why this film hooked her more combat. I've got... Um, over it. Um, verbal diorama. Emily. Is it Emily and Emily? M. It is M. M yes, M over it. Um, a verbal diorama has uh, obviously been talking about it recently as well. Um so slowly building my cool to Mortal Kombat followers. But if you uh obviously a big fan of like all the Asian TV shows that are all coming over at the moment, uh, you should head over to Tranquil Dreams where a friend of the show, Kim Lowe, has uh, just launched her pog- own podcast, um, which is uh, called uh, What's Up. And uh, as I said, it's all hosted through her site, so you can get on there. And she's talking a lot about all these Asian TV shows uh, that uh, she's been watching on there, and as well as other things that she's been watching and playing. So it's definitely worth giving a listen. A listen, and uh, you can find that over at uh, Tranquil Dreams. So uh, we'll put the link in the uh, description below. But if there's nothing else, Stephen, I don't think so. Shall we? Shall we? Shall we have a film this episode as well? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> So we're going to take a quick break. When we return, though, it's time for our feature presentation, Fish Story. All right, guys. So we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. 
Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's got to it's got to be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's got to be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal. Stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Mirren's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in The Wire. Underclothes. Crepes. Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree rape? Yeah, I like tree rape. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday podcast brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. ただ We're back. Uh, obviously, tonight's feature presentation is Fish Story from 2009, directed by Yoshiro Makamura. Uh, the film itself follows a follows the history of a punk rock song called Fish Story, uh, produced by the band Gurkin in uh, 1975, who, having no success, decided to record the song before they split up, and years later could actually prove the key to saving the world from its impending destruction from meter in on a collision course with F. This is a film which was proclaimed the film of the year by the Japan Times and is certainly a rather unique film as it's a multi-stranded story where all the parts mysteriously 
magically all come together at the end. So it requires a little bit of a patience um, as the film follows several different plot threads as we obviously follow the bands as they record the song in 1975. We then skip forward to 1982 where a trio of friends are on the lookout for girls to pick up. Then into 2009 where on a cruise ship a young deckhand might become the hero that everybody needs through to 2012 where the ever seems almost doomed to be killed and wiped out by a giant meteorite which the american efforts have failed and now the hands the hand lies in the hands of japan uh to obviously save the world i'm right in saying this is a japanese film aren't i okay um i just it straight is, in my yes. head when i was going through this it's like is this venerable korean or something um <laughs> As we said, this is a Japanese. Japanese movie, so we're going to apologize in advance if I put you any of the names here because Japanese is hard. It's easy to write, really difficult to podcast with. <laughs> um, but opening thoughts on this one, Stephen, I mean, this is one obviously brought to the show. I've seen it a, few, a while back now, but. Um... I think you I think you put it in our top hundred as well. Yeah, yeah, you? it was in the first top fifty we ran. This was my mm. my first pick of that draft, and um, I remember at the time you saying, "Yeah, I really want to see that," which is something that rarely happens whenever I tell you about films. But no, I this this is a first time watch for me, and the shocking thing is, director Yoshiro Nakamura has made two of my favourite films of all time. I'm really shocked. I just wasn't even... This wasn't even on my radar. Um, his film, Snow White Murder Case, and uh, Inerasable from sort of 2014, 2015, are two really enjoyable sort of thriller films that, that I've... Um, very different, that, that I really, really enjoy. And, and they're sort of on my on my long list of, to bring to the show, especially Snow White Murder Case. Um, and I just hadn't heard of this film at all. And then I watched it, and it's it's so good. It's just it. There are these Japanese films from a certain period of time, sort of alongside your Sonos and your and your Mikes and the people that we talk about a lot. There are there's sort of these these filmmakers who are quite capable of making really sort of, sort of quirky films, sort of funny and quirky, and they don't rely on gross out stuff or anything particularly dark or or obsessed with ozu and family drama. They just make these quirky films, sort of the sort of things that Third Window always put out, yeah. Yes. And and guess what? This is a film that Third Window have put out, and. Even if the stories didn't tie up together, I think I would have enjoyed it. And then the fact they do tie up at the last possible minute for this film to allow it to tie up is genius. Because throughout the film, I'm thinking, how the hell are these stories going to tie together? I wasn't even sure when some of them were happening, (laughs) but it doesn't matter. Um... It's it's yeah it's just it's just a glory uh, yeah really really enjoyed it sort of just just these these quirky films that that have stopped coming out of Japan as far as I can make out the last one was One Cut of the Dead I think and that was very much out on its own just I don't know just sort of whimsical funny imagination you know they're not perfect by any shape or form 
but they are they're, they're but they're not constricted by shape and form which i think is what's the important thing so yeah really enjoyed it so yeah nice one yeah, I mean, this is the sort of film that reminds me of the differences, obviously, between when we look at the Asian film market compared to the Hollywood system. I mean, can you basically imagine if we pitch this movie to Hollywood and it's like, okay, it's a song where the earth is saved by a song and they would just basically laugh us out of the office because, you know, they want to go the Michael Bay route. They want to throw millions of dollars at things and make things go boom in spectacular fashion or other and, you know, this is free of any of those cliches, even though it does have the wonderful dig at the Michael Bay approach as it mentions that the attempt to stop the meteorite by the Americans to detonate nuclear bombs on the meteorite in the so-called Operation Armageddon have failed. It, 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 does, it does make <laughs> Michael Bay's Armageddon canon in this universe. <laughs> it, 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 it did happen, but maybe had a slightly different ending. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, technically the film is, is technically four stories, although the, the story that takes place in 1975 about an author struggling to translate a book isn't especially interesting. And for myself, the really sort of interesting part of the film is really from when the band take inspiration from said book um, and use it to create the song Fish Story. And I think that's really where the film sort of has the real sort of meat of its, of its story. But, yeah, I mean, this is, um, it's one of those films that when I first watched it, I didn't, I was like, oh my god, this is, this isn't particularly great. And then it got to the end and it was like, oh, now I get it. Um, so it's one that you do have to have a little bit of faith in and you've got to kind of stick with it for a bit. Um, as the film in itself, it opens up and you've got this sort of businessman uh, guy in his, in his motorized wheelchair who goes into a record store which appears to be the only business open despite the fact that he's facing impending doom this record store owner is de- determined to uh, serve these um, customers right to the end and it's just him and this other customer having this talk discussion about this record that's um, got this sort of reputation because it has this one minute of silence at the end and nobody knows why and it's um, from here that we really go into sort of like our first of our tales of uh, Inselected. We were introduced to this timid driver um, here played by uh, Gaku Hamada, who's I couldn't tell if he was like driving around uh, Yakuza thugs or just really bullying friends. But basically he's the assigned driver for these uh, two friends while they go on about cursed records in the back and they're basically using him to drive them out to this uh, date that they've arranged with these three girls and you have this great scene of them in the bar and they've all got these huge tankards of beer and he's got this like little half pint glass of beer um, and from there I mean he's basically he gets the gets told by one of the girls at this meeting who's got some psychic disposition about her that she's going if he doesn't stand up for himself he's going to miss out on meeting this girl who's going to help change his world and um it's uh this really sort of sets in motion really as he happens to be driving along in the cassette which has got fish story magically inserts into uh his his cassette player and starts playing and it sort of sets in motion the events that are going to become very key to saving the world ultimately so 
yeah um so yeah i guess we can talk about each of the each of the little stories <laughs> i think it's the best way to um, approach this because otherwise it's gonna it, get real it messy i mean there's, there's no way i think we're gonna be able to avoid spoilers well i suppose they could but it won't make any sense but yeah so this story like you i assumed he was just the kid who could drive who got bullied by his friends yeah I didn't think there was any more to it than that. But yes, basically, he takes them, he drives them around where they can go pick up girls. And, and like you say, one of these girls is... Uh, don't they have a mutual love of the X-Files or something like that? I can't remember. Something They say something, or just UFOs in Area 51. But she's she's legitimately psychic, I think. And and yes, and, and she sets him on a path from which the rest... We find out eventually the rest of this story unfolds. But um, or a point from which the rest of the story unfolds. But obviously, we've got to get to this point in another story. But yeah, that was, that was a bit weird because I was I was a little distracted trying to work out what his relationship with the other guys was. Because like you, I did I did wonder. Well, are they, are they yakuza? Uh, but I think they were just his mates, and he's just just the guy with the car. <laughs> I think it's because the loud one. He's so aggressive and bullying, and he's all got his his. His chains on and all in his suit and all the rest of this, and he carries himself like you see a lot of these like low-level yakuza thugs, like mm, kind of all brash and loud and and um and as I said with the other guy, it just felt like more that they were doing like a deal over like curse records than just like a a chat between friends. Mm. Um, and though with the girls, you have got the the um the more curvy girl who's just got the best expression on her face because she's just drunk. <laughs> and she just makes me smile so much. Um, and at the same time, the psychic girl ends up going to the love hotel with the loud uh, friend, mm. and she's got the look on her face that um, you think that you know the timid friend's going to step in and say something, which ultimately doesn't. But at the same time, I couldn't help making the joke to myself: "It's like, oh, she didn't see that one coming." <laughs> That's possibly possibly um, the joke but yeah that was a little a little bit of a queasy moment but unfortunately this does happen from time to time in especially in japanese cinema and and, and it gets queasier in this section yes it? it does <laughs> um but we don't actually see what uh happens because we jump from here to our next story where a ferry cook gets to channel's even in a steven seagal uh, to give us what's basically under siege on a budget as he uh, saves a schoolgirl from a bunch of gun-toting hijackers um, in a really random, really random uh, moment of kung fu action. I mean, this is this is the one that just is the quirky bit. This is the quirkiest <laughs> thing. Schoolgirl falls asleep, doesn't she, on the ferry. I guess she's being schooled or lives must be one of the islands off Japan. So she sort of, sort of gets stuck back on the ferry again because she fell asleep. And then for some reason some hijackers take over. Well, I'm not exactly sure what their point is. It's a little provincial ferry. <laughs> They're building <laughs> their way up. <laughs> and I don't know what they're going to do with it. Where are they going to take it? <laughs> but but yeah, as, as you say, sort of, sort of a waiter apparently has been training his whole life for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> and and in a in a very effective, albeit low rent way, does take them out, kind of sorta. Yeah. And um, but but this is what he has been waiting his whole life for. Um, uh, later on, when we find out 
who he actually is, it makes a bit more sense. But yes, this is this is the sort of thing that just wouldn't happen in Japanese society, which makes it so much better. Japanese people don't act all loud and heroic and crazy like that. You know, it, it's a it's a it's a, the sociological sort of strata does, doesn't really allow that. So he's very unusual and. Mm. Quite clearly, the rest of the crowd think he's a bit unusual as well. But, you know, although it's pretty low rent, it's quite well done. It is an enjoyable action scene, to say the least. I love the fact you dismiss the fact he's been training for this moment of his life. I mean, surely the people who do martial arts are just waiting for an excuse to, like, bust out some moves on somebody. They're waiting for, like, the thugs to jump out or something. I guess they are, but he he really seemed to think there was going to be a moment where he was going to be the hero of the story, <laughs> and uh, not just you know I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna better beat up bad people whenever they turn up. I, I always felt there was just a moment in his life that his life was building up to, um, of, of which indeed this is it. Yeah, but not for not for reasons that are entirely obvious. Yeah, I always found that my own fighting training has given me great confidence to run away. So whenever danger finds me, I run away and hide. <laughs> so I've got I've got to be honest with you. If a bunch of hijackers came on a ferry when I was on it, I'd make myself as small as possible. And yeah, yeah, please, please take what money I don't have. Yeah, I mean, how would he defend himself against like a sharp stick or? A planet of strawberries or something <laughs> that's the, the thing he's been trained eye. for hijackers not for not for fruit <laughs> no no not for picnic items <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it, it may have gone a completely different way if they had a sharp stick or something but obviously if you've never seen monty python this is all gonna be lost on you right now but never mind um, next up, we do go. We have a weird time jump because we're actually going right back to the start. So we've got uh, Garakin, who are the punk band who are trying to kickstart a revolution a year before the Sex Pistols. So go them. And it basically explains how they came up with the song Fish Story, which I have to say, I really like the song Fish Story. I think it's really cool. I don't know about yourself, Stephen. No, I absolutely agree. It's really kind of catchy. Now, that this kind of music in Japan does exist. Yep. This sort of independent rock. I mean, calling it punk is a bit like calling the Stranglers punk. It's far too tuneful to be truly punk. But uh, it's kind of the, the clash it, sort of stiff thing. Yeah, sort of thing. It's a sort of, sort of, sort of punk, punk, punk attitude with people who can actually play their instruments. Yeah. But it's, it's really catchy. And... It, it, it works because there are some great Japanese bands from the 70s, 80s, 90s and noughties that do do, if you like this kind of music, which I do, yep. that, 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 that it's it's really good. Um, and and then we get the, you know, that, that classic people, the band sitting around discussing the song and the song titles and the whys over in a cafeteria. <laughs> so we talk we talk about punk and song titles and indeed why this film is called fish story which it's a it makes a little yeah it, it makes more sense when they actually say it out loud i thought that's where they were going with it but yes it's uh you know what do we call it we call it something like fish story don't we i thought it was called fish story I don't think we call it a fish story, but it's 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 it's, it's when you exaggerate. You know, the fish that I caught was ten feet long. 
Oh, Fisherman's Tale. A fisherman's tale. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So that 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 that's really what, what what the idea of it is. But yeah. But but you know, they just you would have thought people sitting round a table in a cafeteria, and then joined by their manager and his son, <laughs> who just eats watching TV <laughs> behind him, but at the same time talking about um, other Japanese pop culture references um would be kind of boring and actually you want to get back to what happened to the guy on the boat what happened to the guy that nearly found something out what happened to the oh my god in the present day everyone's gonna die because a meteor's hitting you know but a huge chunk of this movie is just five guys chewing the cud in a cafe isn't it or cafeteria sorry yeah i mean it's uh, <laughs> you would have thought that there would be like more urgency to address this impending doom <laughs> that's facing it. i mean we're basically when we pick up the film, I mean, we're five hours till the end of humanity as we know it. Most of Japan's fled to Mount Fuji, and they're basically at this point trying to escape the impending tsunami scenario. Um, and all the hopes basically been rested on of all countries, India, who I didn't ever thought they have a space program. Then again, I thought the same about Australia till I saw Iron Sky. <laughs> yeah, so well, so India, India do have a space. But yes, program, apparently actually. India, uh, the Indian space program is handling this uh, rescue attempt. And but we're using, we're using we find a... out that the <laughs> that um, do we, I mean, should we spoil this now? I I, I think it's the films. The films um, twelve, thirteen years old. I think we can spoil it. Okay, well, we basically find out the girl who was saved on the ferry grew up to become an astro- um, a mathematician who's going to be responsible for guiding the shuttle and ultimately saving the Earth. And it's who's all... part of the Indian space program, along with another multicultural people. <laughs> yep, <laughs> wasn't very Indian as a uh, group of people, but yes, I have to say she didn't look too pleased that uh, she'd been coerced into this mission. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> the fact that sometimes mean... fate chooses you for these things yeah. doesn't mean you want to go. <laughs> but yes, that's our, that's our first sort of exposure. Hang on a minute, that's her. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and at the end, it obviously all comes together. But I mean, obviously, while all the the parts of the the actual journey itself, there's some really fun parts throughout throughout the film, and I think it's the conclusion which really sort of makes it all worthwhile and that you see where everything's sort of come together and it's thankfully got none of the smugness that you know that M. Night Shanahan tends to bring to his twists and it's a case of basically more a case of McMurray presenting the mass and revealing the links that were there and often more often than not just basically staring us in the face and we didn't realise it so I, f- yeah, I appreciate I mean, it, show, that. it shows yeah it's it's it's, it's... They're, they're silly and some of the connections are kind of subtle but they do talk to you know that there's plenty of other films which talked about the connectedness of the human race um so you know, there's several other connections between characters and the different time frames um but none of them really matter they just happen to be brushing up against each other or maybe an event here triggered an event there triggered a birth here triggered a person to exist there um, which is how life is, yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. It doesn't do it in the po-faced kind of way that maybe Shalaman might do it, or even um, you know, you mentioned Magnolia early on in this episode. You know, 
the director of that film does it in a bit you know he, he talks about the connectedness of the human race in in that film but it's all oh my god it's so worthy <laughs> i like just, i mean uh, you say that but i like magnolia i mean the fact is all I, boils down to coincidence i love anderson's films right um, and, and 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 don't don't get me wrong but this film does not have the weight on its shoulders of pomposity <laughs> that that other directors would have brought to it. Um, yet it's done so smartly, and everything is everything is unravelled and explained and exposed to us in what twenty seconds. Oh, definitely so. And I think one of the real strengths of the film is the fact that. It's not made overly complex and confusing, which normally happens when you've got multi-strand mm. plots. Um, that everything tends to overlap and it just becomes a confusing message. You're not sure where the hell you're supposed to be. And at the same time, its real sort of focus here is just is not so much about the meteorite, but it's this idea of fear and people overcoming their fear. Whether it's, you know, it's the fear to stand up to your asshole friends or that you're going to be wiped out by a meteorite or that machine gun terrorists are going to take over your ferry. Um, You've got all these people dealing with fear in their own unique ways and the fact that they all happen to be interconnected because of this one song. Um, And the fact, and you can say again, you can say that this all boils down to coincidence if the, you know, if uh, the kid hadn't listened to that song, perhaps he wouldn't have heard uh, the woman crying during the silent part of the song, which then causes him to save her, which causes them to go into the romantic um, partnership, which breeds the kid who goes to be saves the ferry, who then rescues the girl who becomes the mathematician who saves the world. So, yeah. And don't forget, the boy that was brought along to hear about the band talking about it ends up running the record shop which is where they get the sort of other part of the story comes from. So, so even his story is connected in a way that doesn't matter, other than other than to say f you to a bloke who made his money out of running a doomsday cult. Um, <laughs> oh, there's just so much, but it's so elegant. It's so elegantly done in just a moment, and it's funny. And you are worried about whether the world's going to end. And guess what? It's a it's a science fiction apocalypse film with a happy ending, and, <laughs> and yeah, I really love this film. <laughs> I mean, for myself, I mean, yes, I mean, I really love the fact, and I love the fact as well, the fact uh, that it plays jump rope with genres as well as it does, and there's very few films that manages to pull that off. I mean, say the Green Planet, obviously being another prime example. But here we get science fiction, we get kung fu, we get supernatural thriller elements all thrown in here. And I mean, obviously, Moriyama's kung fu antics are really sort of like the show stealing moment of the film. And I mean, it helps the fact that he's got a background as a ballet dancer, which means that when you're watching him dispatch bad guys, it's probably a lot more graceful to watch than a lot of the slack food that um, sort of antics that we get to enjoy over here so and at the same time the fact that you know you've got this song about the song being recorded and then just the raw enthusiasm of the band which unlike a lot of other movie bands they actually feel like a proper band rather than you know a group of actors thrown together and pretending to play instruments um so and i mean that also brings us like the song itself i mean the fact is play pretty much on a continuous loop but I never find myself getting sick of it it's not like uh, the Silver Shamrock theme in Halloween 3 where you like 
okay, can we stop that now? <laughs> it's not, no, it's not an or, irritating um, theme to have in your film, so. No, the only other film which does something similar is um, Sono Suicide Circle, where there's a song which sort of plays among the different elements, but then mutates and changes over time and <laughs> different names and different styles as, as it's played out. That's, that's the only other type. But yes, you're right. Usually a single song or, or theme can get quite annoying. But in this case, it's just, it's just a fun little punk pop song, isn't it? It's... um. Mm. And yeah, the film's nearly two hours long, but I didn't, I didn't tire of it, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching the film again at some stage. Um, usually, these things wind the crap out of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else that you want to discuss on this one at all? Because I think I'm covered everything. No, I, I just, I just think, I just think I want to say well done, sir. Um, I had a suspicion I would like it. Okay, because just from, just from the. Um, just from the title alone, and once I realised who the uh, the, the uh, main director was, I knew what I, I saw somewhat what I was expecting. A bit rougher around the edges than the films I was talking about, but um, yeah, really, really highly recommended film. I think uh, um, I'm really glad you you put it on our on our list, and um, now I'm able to. Uh, double up vote that and if we ever go back again and rejig our list around um, I think Fish Story now gets two votes Great um, So that obviously is uh, Fish Story I mean obviously further viewing for this one is there anything you would want to pair it with because for myself I mean obviously I would say Save the Green Planet for its same genre uh, hopping antics I would also recommend checking out the book Japan Rock Sampler or How the Post-War Japan Blew the Minds on Rock and Roll uh, which is by Julian Cope and it's a small little hardback book uh, that was put out in 2007 I believe it's still quite easy to uh, get hold of and it follows on from uh, Crack Rock and Crack Rock Sampler and basically follows the post-war you know uh, sorry, post-war Japan um, which was really sort of a very experimental time, and you've got some of the weird stories that they have of like uh, bands like hijacking planes and and uh, whatnot. And it also goes into discographies of bands such as you know like uh, Taj Mahal, Traveler's Flower, Traveling Band, and Glue and Shinjuki, as well as the Far East Family Band and Speed. So it's a really interesting read, especially if you're a fan of like uh, you know. 50s to late 60s uh, sort of rock music. It's uh, it's pretty cool stuff. I'd really suggest some other of, of Nakamura's films. Um, the Snow White Murder Case and The Inerasable are the two which I remember um, really well. Um, one's a sort of a detective mystery thriller. The other's more horror-tinged. But both basically are very similar in the sense that he pieces together disparate storylines to bring it together to a satisfying whole um so that, that that's more from that director either the snow white murder case or the inerasable but i enjoyed them both very much um the other one is just to sort of talk about music asian music films um have you seen the heavenly kings 2006 film from uh, directed by daniel Wu? um i think it was his i think it was his uh directorial debut um basically it's a mockumentary about um about a boy band 
um, <laughs> that Daniel Wu and, and a few others are in. Um, although, when it was, well, it, it, it's sort of, is it a mockumentary? Isn't it a mockumentary? I mean, it absolutely is, but but they really went hard with it and sort of created the band and everything as well. Um, so different different kind of music, different kind of attitude to it. But you know, if you want to if you want a double header of Asian music based films, you can you can go um, wrong with the Heavenly Kings. Awesome. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend uh, checking those out. Um, this obviously brings us to the end of another edition of the uh, Asian Cinema Film Club. Thank you as always for listening. If you want to follow us, you can do it. We're on Instagram and Facebook. And on Facebook in particular, we've got a really fun community group happening over on our Facebook page there. And we uh, post pretty much every day. We post uh, news articles and other interesting feature pieces, as well as uh, things that are happening on our own blog, which you can find at asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. And not only do we have our full archive episodes on there as well, we've got the mixtape, we've got the dark side of Asian cinema, we've got the movie vault as well as the anime vault as well so it's a host of really great stuff on there and we're constantly trying to add things on there i know david brooke has piled up on my desk a whole heap of reviews that we are slowly getting moved across um so uh definitely check those out um and uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us, please do hit the like and subscribe button as it all helps raise the profile of the show. Uh, maybe leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. All your feedback is very much appreciated. Um, and uh, if you haven't already, also check out our chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown of Battle Royale, which you can find not only on our podcast feed, but also looking for Battle Royale podcast. But yes, it's uh, certainly been a, a fun project in our contribution to the Movies by Minute community. But uh, Stephen, it's obviously your turn to pick for our next episode. So, what would you like to look at? Uh, do you know I've changed my mind three times okay. about what to do? I was going to suggest we both watch The Call on Netflix after talking about it. Okay. Uh, it but but then I thought no. Okay. And then I thought, do you know what? We haven't talked about The Ring in sixty odd episodes and specials and things like that. And then I thought no. <laughs> And then I realised <laughs> there's a director I've been aching to talk about okay. since episode one. You notice you built this up quite a bit now, so this is going to be a real big letdown if oh, it's done to live it. But it is for you, but it is for me. Right. And I do know there was some chitter-chatter on our face, uh, Facebook group, I think, or some other place where we both frequent online, about the films of Kiyoshi Kurosawa, i.e. the other Kurosawa. And I know I've been going on and on about his films since we've met, I think, okay. I suspect. Um, and so it was just a matter of choosing which of his films. Um, so I spoke a few weeks ago about his latest film. But I would like us to go and watch Cure. Cure. C-U-R-E. Um, Thank you for that. Is, uh, it, well, I'm sure I couldn't say <laughs> you know, it properly. There's obviously the popular band with Robert Smith that also goes yeah. to Cure. So. There's no, there's no, the, no, I just, when I said it out loud... The word didn't seem right on my tongue and my lips, so I thought, hmm, yes, that is what I said. Um, yeah, so um, Kyoshi Kurosawa, um, uh, funnily enough, it's 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 an art house serial killer film. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, it was either that or, or, or Cairo Pulse, um, but I think Cairo Pulse is a little too arty. This one's got some um, really strong performances in it, and I'll be interested in your views about a film from the other Kurosawa. 
So that'll be on our next pick. We'll obviously look at uh, Cure for 1997 uh, by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Um, so make sure you join us for that. Uh, but uh, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Stephen. Thank you for having me as always. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Cure. But until then, good night. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.